Good morning. I'll take a moment before I begin to uh, introduce you. My daughter was here with me. I, I've got a new title. I'm going to put this on my resume as the Holiday Preacher. Since I was here on July 4th, and now I get to be here on uh, Labor Day weekend. But my daughter came with me, my youngest daughter, Kristen, and dear friends uh, who were part of our church in Plattsburgh many years ago, and we've maintained this fr friendship, Harry and Darlene Oliver. And if you want to know the importance of a friendship and commitment to the pastoral family, these two embody that completely, and I could preach a whole sermon on that, but can't today. But they are dear friends, and uh, we are so indebted to them for so many reasons. But it is good to be back. I want to share with you some scripture that's familiar. I was thinking about that song that we just sang and wondered in my mind when we were making that uh, reference in a vague sort of way to a prodigal that might be on our hearts, I wondered who might be on your heart this morning, a family member, a spouse, a, a friend, someone you know. But uh, as we read this passage of Scripture this morning, perhaps you'll think about that person and when I was here in July, I talked to you about thinking during these months about a preferable future. And so as I kind of become the end of this story, I want to share with you what I hope the church will become. Let's stand together as we read Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, beginning with verse 11. There was a man who has two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a census, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. 
Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never disobeyed and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his bro this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Well, when Pastor Jeff invited me to serve as the bookends of his sabbatical, he asked me to help bring some sense of clarity to this event in the life of your church and then to serve as a bit of a springboard into what may be the next chapter. Again, I want to commend you for giving Pastor Jeff and Kathleen this time to find a deep sense of renewal and rest. And I'm sure he's anxious to return and you're anxious to have him return. I've been praying about our time together this morning, and I confess that there's been one major theme on my mind, and it is a burden that I have for the next generation of young people that will occupy the seats of some of us who are older. I find myself these days identifying with the prophet when he said, there is in my heart a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. If you haven't noticed, the church in general is hemorrhaging young people at what should be an alarming rate to those of us who are here. Maybe this isn't personal for you. But during the last 10 years of full-time ministry, I was faced with a series of deaths of young people who had overdosed on heroin and fentanyl. These were not people I had never met before for the most part. These were young people that I knew. Some had heard my sermons and even said they enjoyed my sermons. Others had been part of church activities uh, slept at my house when they had no place to sleep except in their car, etc. Sarah, a young woman who had a two-year-old, had just started attending church and had asked to be baptized in our annual August baptism. But at the last minute, she changed her mind, and just a week or so later, later I was conducting her memorial service. I went to the calling hours and tried to have a conversation with her husband, wanting to know more about the situation. But he was so high on drugs 
that we could not carry on that conversation, I got more out of her two-year-old who approached me as I stood near the casket. Her two-year-old said, Hey, mister, my mom's dead. He had no idea what he was saying. But then he said, What's going on? What's going on? Now that question has haunted me ever since, and the answer, while complicated, has become more clear as I've listened to the stories of many of these young people that have been a part of our churches. I studied the data. I've attempted to understand changing cultural trends. I've heard the heartbreak of parents. I can still hear in my mind as though it's yesterday, parents weeping with deep grief. But I think what perturbs me most is what I perceive as a lack of urgency, not just about those that are dying, but those young people that we're losing to the faith. I recall on one of my many times that I felt like we needed to pray through the night at church, I was the only one that showed up, and it was one or two in the morning, and I was feeling sorry for myself, you know, God, you asked me to do this, and nobody came. And in walked about 1 or 2 a.m., a young man who asked me to pray for him. I knew who he was. He attended church with his mother and children occasionally. But he told me his story, and I didn't even know he had hidden it. But he was addicted to heroin and to alcohol. I was surprised by his confession because his mother always described him as a good boy. But good, good is not good enough. Good enough when you are broken as deeply as he was. And not long after that night, I received the call that David had died and gone into eternity in an accident, a DUI. Our last prayer may have been the last prayer he prayed with anyone. A few days later, I watched as his two elementary children sat in the front road, dressed in their little suits, trying to make sense of the loss of their father. Later, 10 years ago, or uh, 10 years later or so, one of those sons showed up at church. And he found his way at the altar at the end of a service, and he confessed to me that he too was struggling with drug addiction. I don't know. His mother was so ashamed, I guess, that she never brought him back to church and made it difficult for me to make contact with him. But whether it be the shame a parent feels regarding their lost children, and they hope no one will think less of them or less of their child, It doesn't change the fact that from my perspective, it's still an emergency. There's a commercial on TV recently, and I'm sure you have heard it. The tagline was uh, pretty, pretty catchy. Just okay is not okay. It was funny, it was entertaining, but as I've thought about it in 
relationship to my own situations. It is painfully true when I look over the landscape of young people that I've been involved with over the years. It screams of the danger of mediocrity. The far country is robbing us of some of our very best. And I'm not talking just about drugs and alcohol and those sorts of things. I'm talking about a thought process in which people leave the ways of God to seek other places. There's evidence that the condition of the church in Laodicea, as recorded in the book of Revelation, is still threatening the mission of the church. The words of Jesus to the church need little interpretation. And here is what God said to John. I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not cold, you're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale, you're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag. I'm rich, I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Oblivious that in fact you are a pitiful, blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. He goes on to say, the people I love, I call to account, prod and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. Up on your feet, then about face, run after God. The AT&T commercial featuring the phrase just when just okay is not okay pokes fun at a okay tattoo parlor, the okay babysitter, the okay sushi. But I have a burden about what is at stake when it comes to our kids that we're losing and we take the mindset that just okay is okay. The two-year-old's question, what's going on? I find myself afraid to say that I think I know some of the answer, but I have felt drawn to this chapter today where Jesus responds to the religious leaders of the day, where the Pharisees and teachers of the law are critical of the attention that Jesus is giving to sinners. It is interesting to me that Jesus provides a three-point response with stories of lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son, really two lost sons. And while he seems aggravated by the religious insiders, surprisingly, he shows incredible compassion for the lost sheep and the lost son in particular. Remember his reference in his own statement about the lost, the sinners and tax collectors are someone else's children maybe even related to some of the religious insiders. Later in his gospel, Luke relates the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because of this man. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. And then underscore this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
I want to remind you, the beginning of this next chapter, the lost matter to God, that's the reason the Father sent the Son. That's the reason he went to such extremes to reach people like us. And these three parables reflect his mission. These are our children. These are our grandchildren. Yet we seem to have become accustomed to mediocrity. It's not okay. It is not okay that the only mother and father who were supposed to be there for two-year-old Liam abandoned him went into a room, took drugs while he was in the house by himself, and his mother died. There's something wrong with that picture. It is not okay that the one who is lost is a good kid. If he is so broken that God has not had the opportunity to change him. Now, I realize what I'm talking to you about this morning is painful, and I haven't come here to shame you today. In fact, I think that personal shame is the reason that we live with mediocrity at times. We feel like failures in our parenting and powerless to make things right. But this morning, let's just have a reality check. If I look at what Jesus is saying here, just 99% is not okay. Just 90% of the lost coins found is not okay. Just 50% of our children is not okay. The scripture is clear. God is not willing that any should perish. So what is the point of Jesus' emphasis? Average is not good enough when it comes to lost people. Above average is not good enough. Nothing less than 100% is good enough. So what kind of church will we be in this next chapter? What will be the story of the next decade of your life together? Here's what I imagine. Here's what I'd love to see. Young people returning to God and the faith in a community of faith that is vibrant and passionate and compassionate and authentic, transformative, and anything less than routine. Our young people have told us why they're leaving. And we like to look at the culture out there and say, well, the culture is wooing them away. The problem is in the far country, some other place. But as I have said, I've read the research, and according to Barna Research and others, the reasons they are leaving are not all that complicated in virtually every study they conduct, representing thousands of young people who have been interviewed They report that born-again Christians fail to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. 
Maybe that shocks you. But they're saying they don't see anything significant in our lives versus those of a non-believer. And it's easy to point the finger of blame on cultural trends, but perhaps we need to take an honest look in the mirror. According to one research group, they report that we explored more than 100 variables related to comparing born-again Christians to non-born-again adults. And they discovered that born-agains were distinct on some religious variables, most notably owning more Bibles, going to church more often, and donating money to religious and non-profits, especially a church. However, when it came to non-religious factors, the substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, there were few meaningful gaps between born-again Christians and non-born-agains. Christians emerged as distinct in areas people would expect, some religious activities and commitments, but not in other areas of life. Now, whether their perceptions are accurate or not, you have to be the judge And the only way that you can find out is to have a conversation. But that is a perception that is in their minds. So if a close examination of our own life reveals some gaps, we can address those by a renewed commitment that reflects that we're all in. We can bring that up to 100% and we respond to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, the people I love, I call to account, prod and correct and guide so they'll live at their best. Up on your feet then, about face, run after God. But there's something more that's going on that concerns me deeply, and that is what's happening in the thinking of many of the young people who are discarding the faith. They begin to waver when they don't see the integrity in those who profess. But there's something else referred to as a process of deconstruction. I think we pick this up in pieces of the parable of the lost sons. And I recognize these parables that Jesus gave were stories that he made up, but if you've had any experience similar to mine, you will recognize that the story comes very close to where some of us live, or at least we know someone. Think about it. Child grows up in a home, he's given everything he needs and wants, develops an attitude of entitlement, something seems to be missing, He's had the blessing of living in his father's house. And rather than being a steward, he decides he'll go do a little exploring. Has this nagging question, is that all there is? So he follows the philosophy of the far country. You deserve to be happy. You're entitled to live a good life. Grab all the gusto you can while you can. 
And we know this story, don't we? There is a God-shaped vacuum in all of us that challenges this attitude of give me what I deserve to make me what you want me to be. But it can take some convincing to get there. To live in the far country without feeling incredibly guilty, we begin to justify our behavior. There's a term gaining popularity these days called deconstructionism. Essentially, it's rooted in a philosophy that all authority should be questioned and that there are really no moral absolutes. A megachurch pastor I read about recently, incredible communicator, charismatic, intelligent, began drawing in large crowds of college students and began to struggle with the idea of hell. He studied the Greek, the Hebrew, and then he did a little reasoning on his own and wrote a book called Love Wins. And though he dances around the issue, as I read the book and I listened to the interviews, he seems to be saying, well, maybe God didn't really mean what he said. Maybe he really was just kind of exaggerating. Maybe it's not punishment for all eternity. And he uses his intellectual capabilities and charisma to convince us that we have embraced a truth that no longer is true. That somehow we have become smarter than God as we have evolved. But in my mind, there is this thought that God reminds us that our thoughts and his thoughts aren't always the same. That his ability and his will and his thought process is so far above us that there are times that we simply have to trust what his word says. What you believe and who you are matters and just okay is not okay. We've had examples in our culture, in our religious circles, an incredible apologist able to mesmerize the intellectuals while living a double life of sexual indiscretion and scandal. And his world came tumbling down And just okay is not okay. An incredible communicator built his kingdom, a megachurch where young people gathered because there was a vacuum in their own lives and he preached a message that related to them. But he he wasn't who he said he was. And eventually, because character counts, eventually his whole kingdom crashed like a house of cards. A leading megachurch pastor who in the pulpit came across as humble, taught thousands and thousands of people leadership principles, stepped away from ministry because of his abuse of power and and his improper relationship 
with women. I believe that we're living in a time in which we are discovering how dangerous the philosophy of accepting just okay can be. The deconstruction of our faiths is a very dangerous process, particularly when it is isolated from a faith community. Within the faith community, there are checks and balances. But this son is away from a faith community. He's immersed in the culture, and life begins to unravel. And there is an unraveling going on that is changing the landscape of what we know as the church. And those that are paying the price are our children. I find it interesting these days. Well, more than interesting, I find it troubling that our young people have little scriptural basis or trust in the scripture when defining what is right and wrong regarding moral issues. You might recall that Jesus told another parable, a story, as he was coming to the close of the Sermon on the Mount. It was a parable of the builders in which he reminded his audience that just okay is not okay. And Jesus said, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came down, the stream rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Nick attended our church off and on, and apparently, according to his mother, respected me and enjoyed my sermons. I don't know how you would enjoy some of what I say. I received a call from his mother, and she was broken. Nick was another overdose case. I can still hear the wails of parents who have lost their children. The family decided to have an open mic at the memorial service, and I'm always hesitant about it. We opened the floor for comments, and one of Nick's friends, who was in recovery, stood and made a statement that I will never forget. He said, please don't judge us. We are not bad people. We are broken. We're all broken to one extent or another. When you've pastored as long as I have, some days feel like a hallmark movie, only it's not a movie that's going to end well because decisions have consequences and we know that these truths that Jesus was teaching us are firm. Decisions that we make will begin to see a ripple effect of deconstructionism. For this young man in the story, he finally came to his senses. And when I pray for these young people, I realize that my words will never persuade them, but I pray that God will orchestrate circumstances in their lives and bring them to their senses where they can recognize I am broken, I am a sinner, I am lost, I am in need of my Father. 
where they can come to a time which we refer to as repentance, in which they're in their brokenness, they come to the Father and say, not give me, but make me. This is the posture. And where a real restoration takes place. I don't know how you read this parable, but I've been challenged in my thinking about it. You know, so many of us like to label each other by our past. This young man comes back, he's broken, he's ashamed. I don't know how he can even face his father. His father hardly gives him an opportunity to speak. And he receives him. And the son says, just make me a slave. That's all. I, I, I'm satisfied to be a slave. And the father knew that that's not enough. It's not enough to just be restored to a slave status. You were built to be a son. And he restored him to full sonship. It's critical. And then what I love is what Jesus says when the lost sheep is found. He says, I tell you this, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And what does Jesus say about the lost coin? In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. The father chooses to throw a party because it's a time to celebrate. Now, I've visited quite a few churches. I've been retired now two years. I've visited quite a few churches. And the one I like going back to the most is a church in Quincy, Mass, that has a lot of people who were broken by the far country and have come home. I walked in there one day and started talking to a young man and And before I knew it, he had told me his whole story about how God had delivered him from alcohol and drugs. I sat in that congregation, and when it was time to sing, they stood and everyone engaged in singing and celebrating what God had done in their lives. I looked at these young men that were living in halfway houses and As I sat behind them, they pulled out their Bibles and their notebooks and they took notes about what the pastor was teaching that day. And they were cheering for each other and excited about what God was doing in their lives. A couple of days ago, my daughter, who has been a youth pastor for 20 years, posted the following in her Facebook. She said, I've been a youth pastor for almost 20 years and had the chance to be around a lot of teens over the course of my life. Some have a way of impacting you more than you will ever 
impact them. And Brandon was one of those. I remember the first time I met him in our church parking lot while he and his buddies were skating. Our world seemed so different. I'd bring my board out and attempt to skate or just give up and share snacks with he and his friends, always leaving an invitation to youth group. And one night, he finally did. And it changed everything for me. He would ask hard questions. He would say shocking things and continually show up with his friends. We would hang out at Rocky's Pizza, ride around in the church van, and Nate and I would bring him home each night after youth group. He taught me what it means to meet people right where they are, what grace looks like, and how God has never finished with our stories. A couple of years after he graduated, he called me and told me that he had given his life to Jesus. He wanted me to come back so that I could baptize him. And that day goes down in my youth ministry as one of the top five moments as I watched a church who had come to love and pray for him over the years celebrate his decision. This morning, I woke up to the news that Brandon passed, died in a car accident, and I haven't been able to stop crying. He will never know the impact he had on my life, and I'm forever grateful for him. Until we meet again, Brandon. So imagine, imagine a church where it was clear that its sole purpose was to rescue the perishing. I think that in this trilogy of parables, Jesus has provided the grid for a value system for a church whose mission is in alignment with his heart. If we're in alignment with his heart, we will be a church that refuses to accept 99% found as okay, and reaffirms the value of one. It'll be a church where the focus on the lost is clear and laser-like. It shows in our conversations. It shows in our budgeting. It shows in our staffing. It shows in what we do. And it will be a church where our lost children come home and they experience deep restoration that goes beyond just the change in status. And it will be a church where we have this strong, strong sense that just okay will not be okay. When the passion for our lost kids returns to the church, there will be children and kids coming back to a Jesus they're still looking for. And as a result, the celebrations that take place will be celebrations of great, great joy. Let's pray.
Father, as I close this sermon today, there are young people on my mind. There are young people, there are young people that I have been praying for for years. And it's been discouraging at times. But I think of Danny, a teenager from a non-Christian home where we planted seed and 35 years later he came to Christ. And then he led his mother and father to Christ. It's hard. It's hard to maintain a sense of urgency of, about all of this. We want to be comforted. But Father, don't let us be lukewarm when it comes to this issue of our lost kids. In this next chapter, in this next chapter, that Pastor Jeff and these people will write, Maybe a chapter in which we turn the tide and our youth come back to God, to the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.